Hey, this is Andrew from the Medical Money Podcast. Here we share tips and tactics to help doctors earn, grow, and protect their money. Please share it with your colleagues. Today's episode has got nothing to do with money. It's about something much more important than that. It's about family. The corona crisis will have a huge impact on our children. You could argue they are, in fact, our biggest investment. My guest today is Dr. Kim Lee. Kim is a child psychiatrist with a special interest in gaming addiction. He's a TED speaker and has been interviewed on the Sunrise Breakfast Show. Very soon, he'll be featured in an SBS documentary called Are You Addicted to Technology? He also finds the time to work as a stand-up comedian. Today, we cover some of the psychological issues your children might face and how parents can manage the screen time, gaming, and social media habits of their family. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. Hey, Kim, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, doing all right. We've known each other for about 20 years now since the, the fun days back at uni. Wow. Can you tell us about what you're doing work-wise at this point in time? At the moment, I am working from home doing telepsychiatry through the platform Call to Mind and doing a couple of days a week of that. And my plan was to do more stand-up comedy and pursue my passion for performing stand-up comedy, but that has all gone out the window. So... Now it's it's back to the drawing board, I'm afraid. Well, it does, uh, it does prove our parents right, although they did say that medicine was a, a good career path yeah. uh, in, in good times and in bad. Yep. Yeah, so thanks for joining us today. My situation is I've kept my kids at home now for, for two weeks. School's gone online, and as of yesterday, we're, we're not even allowed to take them to the park. Wow. And one of the other things I've been discussing with my wife is how do we talk about this virus, given that uh, we don't want to scare them, but obviously they can recognize that something isn't right. Today, I'd like to discuss some of the psychological issues that we should be aware of as parents and get your insights regarding things like screen time, gaming, and social media. So from your point of view, what are some of the coronavirus-related problems that you're seeing in your clinical work, and what are some of the ways that parents can help manage these? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I myself don't have any kids, but I have uh, nieces and nephews, and it just breaks my heart when we were allowed to go to a playground. I visited my nephew there, and he's only three years old, but he came up to me, and instead of giving me a hug, he put out his elbow and touched me with his elbow. (laughs) Right. And for me, it's just like, you know, I miss those guys so much. But, you know, we're we're doing these social distancing restrictions and practices for a reason. And it's because for our love of our family. And what I've looked at in terms of the studies of past outbreaks of H1N1, SARS, Ebola, what they found out was is that carers, people who care for other people are actually at risk of developing psychological symptoms. So um, pregnant mothers, people who care for kids, people who care for uh, elderly people, people who are on the front line, we're all at risk. So I think the most important takeaway that I can tell your listeners is that to make sure you look after yourself because if you can't look after yourself, who's going to look after your family? And now in terms of helping out your kids and explaining um, to them what's going on, I think it's really important that you give them age-appropriate information, 
that the information is correct. And if you're telling your child to do something that's out of the ordinary, that's different to the routine, make sure you give them a clear rationale about why you are doing something. So for example, my three-year-old nephew, he puts out his elbow, he touches me on the elbow. Um, his parents must have just explained to him, look, right now we want to make sure that we don't get any germs and so you're not allowed to hug Uncle Kim right now, but you can put your elbow out. That's the explanation. Now, now the playground situation, I know that they go to the playground every day and my nephew is going to miss going to the playground, but I don't know how they've decided to explain it to him. But these are very confusing times. And I think as long as you give them something, just any kind of explanation, even if you have to tell a white lie, I think it's fine in this time and climate as long as you make it very clear to them because it's the confusion and the um, the uh, unpredictability that I think is the most dangerous for kids. Now, the with regards to the coronavirus itself, I actually saw a teenager today. He's, he's 12, yeah, 12 years old and he was referred to me for anxiety and the problem was is that he actually called up his mum uh, even before the lockdown, just when coronavirus was really starting to get some momentum in China. He honestly believed that the world was coming to an end. He didn't understand what was going on and in his own mind believed that millions of people were dying and that he was at risk and uh, his mum was at risk and his grandparents were at risk. And it was only through talking to him and getting a good history that I realized that there were some risk factors for him, um, namely a family history of anxiety and also the fact that he had a history of asthma. So uh, I think with, with his situation, it was quite unique, but I didn't actually diagnose him with an anxiety disorder. I just felt that it was a normal reaction. And of course, you know, you need to pay attention to the intensity and duration of the symptoms because that's when we start thinking about is this an acute stress reaction is this an adjustment disorder or is this just normal mm, i think one of like having grown up um you would have re remember this as well from the the times when hiv was the disease that was taking over the world the pictures of the grim reaper was on tv pretty much every day and in my mind, there was this viral that, that was going to kill everybody, even, and I had no idea about the transmission or anything. Right now, my five-year-old is asking me, Dad, what is that ball thing that looks like a virus? And I really don't have any simple way to explain it to him, just because, in many ways, because I'm scared of the next uh, question that he's going to ask. And so I say, oh, you know, that's not a virus. How, how should parents approach this kind of imagery and scary pictures that kids are uh, observing on TV as yeah. the news comes yeah, I mean, I think I think there has to be a line drawn in the sand, isn't it? Like, you, you can't just continually bombard them with this information. And that's the problem, I think, with social media is that it's endless. It never stops. It's a channel that is 24 hours a day. And the way it's designed is that it will send you articles. It will send you videos that are emotive. Those, those videos that you see of people fighting over toilet paper. It's on your newsfeed for a reason because it draws your attention and it keeps you online and then they make more money on advertising. Now, if that person, that poor old lady or that poor person in the video 
decides, you know, they want that video taken down, Facebook will decide whether it's uh, appropriate content or not based on their their guidelines. And they're most likely going to keep it there if it draws enough viewers. It, it doesn't keep the people in mind. It keeps their stockholders in mind. It keeps their uh, business model in mind. So I think, you know, in the end, it's you as a parent, you have to draw the line and say, when's enough? Um, when, when, how much time and how much should they be exposed to it? And, you know, this, this will hopefully blow over in a couple of months time, but it, it is going to be a marathon, I'm afraid. And uh, there's going to be ramifications after. So in the, in the Lancet review article, it talks about uh, increased stigma towards people who were working on the front line, people who were in hospitals, people who were in quarantine, and also people who are of minority and ethnic groups. So, you know, being of um, Asian or Chinese background, your kids are going to be targeted when they go back to school. They might get racially abused or even rejected. People might not want to hang around with them because they fear that your child might actually have the virus itself. And that's a, you know, a legitimate, um, I guess, uh, reaction, I guess, but it, it, it can linger on months after everything blows over. I mean, even myself, I went to a public place and a kid said it to my face. Oh, like he thought that I couldn't hear, but he goes, oh, that guy has coronavirus. And I was like, what? I heard that. That's totally racist. And, but it's just how things are today, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, on things like anxiety, so are there any mm. signs or things that we can recognize early in our kids that might uh, be them exhibiting anxiety mm-hmm. or depression mm-hmm. as you know, this drags on? It's going to be obviously they're going to lose contact with their yeah. friends and their social connections. Yeah. I think sleep is a big one. Sleep is, is always a telltale sign if your child is, is worrying at nighttime. And if they're in their bedroom uh, by themselves in their own bedroom, you know, that's the longest period of time in their day where they're going to be away from anyone. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a potential symptom. Um, obviously, looking at their emotional symptoms, um, whether they're crying, whether they are, um, you know, they, they talk about hypervigilance in the Lancet review that people who have uh, PTSD symptoms they will continually wash their hands even though, you know, the anxiety of the community has gone down. They will continually worry about um, germs on their hands. They, they might be worried about, you know, small symptoms. They might get a niggly throat and believe that they've got the coronavirus. They might get a fever and go, oh, that must be the coronavirus. I'm going to infect my family. Those kinds of worries. Yeah, and like I say, so on screen time right now, my daughter, while we're recording, this is actually watching uh, Frozen for about the millionth time uh, on the Disney Plus channel. What age is it safe to start and what are some of the problems associated with uh, screen time, especially in young kids? Yeah, there's so many different um, risks, I guess, involved with too much screen time. I mean, even just the posture that they're in a chiropractor did a study in Queensland and it showed that on an x-ray that uh, adolescents were getting horns or like bony growths in the back of their neck because it's of the amount of weight they were putting on their neck. And I always say that, you know, 
it's evidence of the devil's work. You know, kids are growing horns in their heads. But um, part of me thinks it just might be the population in Queensland. But that's a it's a joke. But <laughs> um, but you know, uh, the World Health Organization have come out with some recommendations on kids under age of five. So uh, children or babies who are only one years old should not have any screen time. Uh, we should be focusing on good quality sleep because we know that growing brains need sleep to consolidate all the uh, things that they've learned during the day. And uh, we want to prevent worldwide obesity because so many kids are being stationary they're not moving around and that we need to make sure that they get 30 minutes at least of vigorous exercise a day and also the world health organization is focusing on parents making sure that they read to their child face to face and that they're interacting with them using that close space to um, use your facial expressions um, use the intonation of your voice and really just share uh, those precious moments that you uh, will take for granted when your kids are all grown up. Yeah, so definitely trying to maintain their sleep, avoiding obesity and growing horns on their neck sounds like a pretty good reason. It's just (laughs) now it's so hard, especially as parents are taking Mm. over the teaching role while kids are stuck at home and you can't Mm. even take them out to the park now. So it's it's pretty challenging to keep, like you said, looking after the carers' sanity Mm. uh, as well, which is definitely valid. I mean, Um, even like there's going to be increase of domestic violence, you know, the money problems will lead to conflicts and... Uh, for a lot of families, they might actually not stick together after all of this is blown over. So that's going to be an expensive um, process for a lot of families. Yeah, I was reading the other day about the um, increase in domestic violence that happened after the bushfires. Now we've kind of got the double blow coming with the uh, this whole lockdown. And sometimes, you know, spending spending too much time with with people indoors, not being able to have your own space and do your own thing and exercise yep. and, and those other social contacts is really a recipe for um, a ticking time bomb just and just one little tripwire is able to set set people off. And yeah, I do worry about, you know, kids getting exposed to, to yelling and screaming matches and, you know, God forbid, you know, domestic violence as well. You mentioned the bushfires. I mean, Beyond Blue have reported that they've got a four-time increase in the number of calls for help um, during this period, and one in four calls are actually related to the COVID nineteen, and their their number of traffic is seven times greater through their website than it was during the bushfire. So there are a lot of people out there seeking help, and uh, it's it's really crucial that we make sure we look after our mental health because if you're not able to function mentally, you're not going to be able to function at work. You might, um, you know be under a lot of stress and once everything goes back to normal you're going to really have to up your game again to catch up back up up again and um, get back to normal and if, if you're not in a good headspace you're not going to be able to provide for you and your family. Yeah, it also comes into medical error. For, for me, working in anaesthetics, which is critical care, we have what we, which is called the HALT things, H-A-L-T, which is hungry, angry, late and tired. And I think all of those things do definitely Swiss cheese into us not performing at work because we might be angry at the kids or not sleeping and all that other stuff does snowball sometimes. Wow. Then you add the stress of um, the overlying you know, fear and 
um, uh, infection control that's happening yeah. in the workplace, yeah. um, it's pretty easy to, uh, to to spiral. Yeah, you have a uh, particular interest in game addiction. How do uh, games like Fortnite, which has really taken the world by storm, how do they get kids hooked? And what's what's the attraction to kids? And you know, what can parents really do to to draw their kids back into the real world? Yeah, I mean. I'll, I'll go back to our university days. There was actually someone in my class who failed um, their exams because they were playing NBA 2002. <laughs> Do you remember that EA sports game? Um, yeah. We were in swap back and I was like telling my friend, look, you better start studying because if you keep playing this game, you're going to fail your exams and then we're not going to be able to go on our overseas trip. And, and guess what? When we went overseas... He got his results back. He had to buy a ticket back home to sit supplementary exams and a ticket and, and a textbook so he could read it on the plane. Now, thankfully, he passed his supplementary exams, but you know, the games, you know, there's a lot like they were addictive already 20 years ago. Just think about how addictive they are now. The game Fortnite makes $300 million per month. Wow. And they set up, yeah, they set up a competition worth a hundred million dollars and you know a teenager in the u.s won a million dollars and that was for them just free marketing so just from a marketing point of view esports or playing video games professionally is the perfect way for them to glamorize and target kids and say look why would you bother going to med school for six years when you can just practice playing Fortnite and become you know, a popular YouTuber or a Twitch streamer, you know, there are all these um, carrots that are dangled in front of them. Now, in terms of the actual game themselves, they are designed by psychologists. They're designed by people who know how to make the game addictive. Now, just uh, uh, one of them, one of the aspects is the randomized rewards. So in Fortnite, you can actually get these what we call loot llamas and these llamas, you smash the llamas and then out comes all these little surprises and little rewards and you don't know what's going to be um, inside that llama. So you might get one day a really good uh, reward and the next day you might get an average reward. The other thing I think which is most compelling about Fortnite is this social aspect and the number of players that you can play against. So you can play now against 100 other players. So the odds against you are stacked. But if you make it into the top five, if you win a game of Fortnite, you know, it only takes you 20 minutes, but it's the it would be the most thrilling experience, the most exciting, uh, gratifying experience that you could rub in the faces of your friends. You know, um, and, and it's, it's akin to like winning a tennis tournament in oh. the real world that um, you know we're used to previously. And it's and the turnover time is so quick, and it doesn't re- really require much effort. You kids actually tell me that they've got these strategies that they will continually use, such as avoiding um, any contact with any other players, just so they can make it into the top ten and um, seem as though they're really good at the game when when in fact they're not. And they might not be winning every single time, but if they win every hundredth time, you know, that can be rewarding enough for them. But um, one of the other things that I explain to parents is is to watch out for the battle pass. So a battle pass is essentially a contract with Fortnite. The kid pays $15 and it's 10 weeks contract where you have to complete a certain number of tasks. And to complete those tasks will take you on average 100 hours of gameplay 
100 hours of gameplay. And wow, that's two or well, two and a half full working weeks. Uh, yeah. And a lot of kids will finish it within uh, one or two weeks, you know. So they're, they're averaging uh, 40 hour weeks easily. And, and for uh, these kids, their only uh, reward is the virtual currency, the, the virtual rewards in the game. It's not real money. So um, that number of uh, items is worth $250. So really, they're only working for $2.50 an hour, and they love it. They, they're willing to work for as little as $2.50 an hour. And that's, that's what I use to explain to a lot of um, families about uh, how enticing it is and how psychologically rewarding these games are because we know that young men nowadays are working 40% less in the workforce because they'd rather play video games at home. Going out, getting a job, earning money, paying your parents back who put you through, um, you know, uh, financial stress through school and getting a, a car, that kind of thing. You know, they're, they're willing to live in their parents' basements and um, eat two-minute noodles and just play video games all day. Yeah, that's that's incredible, really. So, what what do these credits do? They allow you to basically upgrade your armory or your weaponry, or is it kind of just <laughs> a, a social signaling thing? So, what, what, why, what's the benefit in the game? It's more of a uh, social signal, signaling thing. So, um, the the items don't actually give you any benefit in the game itself because if if you were able to build the best character it would be the rich kids who would own the game and dominate and all the other kids would quit so it's always a level playing field the only thing that you can show off is um, the different clothing and uh, the de- different dance moves so right, okay. for for those kids they will see someone in a certain um, costume and they'll recognize that that kid has either um, spent a lot of time or money and there's a lot of prestige associated with those items. So, uh, you know, the actual um, Australian Senate actually looked into whether uh, Fortnite or games like Fortnite or video games that have um, loot boxes, so the randomization rewards, should be banned from Australian um, households. Now, countries like Belgium and the Netherlands have banned loot boxes from video games uh, because it, they consider it a form of gambling. But in Australia, they don't consider that a form of gambling because under the definition of gambling, you can't exchange those items for real-world money. You can't pay your bills with all this virtual currency. So under the Australian definition, it's not considered gambling. But we know that kids will st- either steal accounts, they'll steal items, and they'll sell it on the third-party black market um, uh, platforms. And the kids will go, oh, that's a $1,000 skin. Why is it $1,000? Oh, because if you buy a $1,000 smartphone, you can get that special skin, and that skin is rare, and that skin is worth a lot of money. Interesting. So, yeah, I always thought it was about um, increasing your power capabilities, but no, really no. it's no different to, to buying no. a Rolex watch or showing off an amazing Exactly, handbag. exactly. Okay, moving away from um, gaming, uh, let's move on to social media. Yep. So what uh, do you see as the impacts and the dangers of social media on children? Yeah, uh, funny enough, I'm part of a uh, startup right now that's looking at countering cyberbullying because as a psychiatrist, as a child psychiatrist, I've seen the, the most uh, you know, uh, terrible effects of cyberbullying and I've, I've uh, you know, had 
whole communities affected because someone has actually ended their own life because of um, cyberbullying and um, someone posted a viral video of someone getting beaten up and they, they ended up taking their own life. So, and that had a contagion effect that actually spread throughout um, their community pretty much mainly via social media because all the kids found out about it, all the kids from the school knew about it and all the schools around them knew about it. So um, it's really important that we make sure that um, the, the media um, deal with uh, incidences such as cyberbullying and um, even just reports of suicide is really important. So if anyone out there is listening to this and, you know, are going through tough times, um, Lifeline is 13114 and I always make sure that if I'm mentioning that as a journalistic um, policy that we you know, we mentioned that these are the helplines that you can contact. Now, uh, cyberbullying, I mean, the reason why I think kids cyberbully is because they get a sense of power, they are anonymous, so no one can really tell them, you know, that you're not really getting a, a reaction right there and then because when you say something to someone's face, there are certain risks and certain, I guess, social norms that you experience when that happens. So uh, that element of distance, that uh, detachment from how it's going to affect someone's feelings is is really a key factor there. And, you know, for some kids, it's about popularity. It's about either getting more popular or maintaining their popularity by bullying someone else at the expense of someone else. The, the other, yeah, the other considerations that parents need to think about is just the amount of time they're spending on there and realizing that social media is uh, endless. It goes on forever. It's very convenient and it's very hard to resist the temptation, the triggers to pick up your phone and check it and not go to sleep by looking at Instagram or posting a TikTok video and checking your uh, response to the TikTok videos. Um, yeah. and What's that? What are the what are the apps uh, and social media platforms that are common with kids? I know Facebook and Insta, mums and dads are on there, so a lot of kids then migrate off to something else. What are the apps that we should be looking out for? TikTok, I think, is the one that's really uh, taking off. It's kind of like the Macarena for millennials it's all about dance moves and songs and um short attention spans they realize that people's attention spans are only i don't know less than 12 seconds or something nowadays uh so the videos are really short um and kids need to be aware that uh people can they need to check their privacy settings and that people can actually stalk them or uh, there might be online predators that will try and entice them by messaging them um, privately. Uh, all these things you need to consider when allowing your child to have their own smartphone device. Yeah, can, I know recently um, there was the change to the Instagram and I think Facebook algorithm, which maybe not algorithm, but in, it showed you, it took away the number of likes and that was meant to be a major vanity metric that a lot of people were using. Can you speak to the pros or cons and what's happened from that? Yeah, I mean, Instagram have uh, changed a lot of their policies. Uh, one of them was to remove self-harm pictures and 
uh, self-harm content, uh, which I think is a good move. The other thing that they did recently was to take away the number of likes on, a, on any given post. So you can see the number of people that like your content, but other people can't see how many likes that you've received. So they're saying that they're taking away the comparison aspect. However, they've actually maintained that you can actually click in and have a look and investigate how many names there are on someone's like list. So you can actually physically go in there and have a look and see, oh, does your friend also like it? So I think they've replaced one bad thing for another potentially bad uh, function in the in in their platform. So instead of um, being drawn into and comparing number by number, it's saying, hey, if you really want to check, you can actually stalk even further. So it's really playing into that stalking mentality and making kids spend more time on their platform and they make more money via their advertisers. And it still does, it doesn't really take away that reinforcement because it's just turned inward rather than... Yeah, it's turned inward, yeah. So what do you reckon is the appropriate age for kids to have, you know, a Facebook or an Insta account? I think uh, that question is a really loaded question. Uh, I get questions like that all the time, like what's the right number of time, number of hours, what's the most appropriate age? Uh, I've, I've really kind of moved away from giving any kind of number. Um, I mean, I think Facebook and Instagram have a, a minimum requirement of being 13, but, I mean, who's really monitoring and policing these guidelines anyway. The main thing I think is in terms of video games themselves or social media, there are actually classification guidelines um, on the Australian website. So if a kid comes into me uh, hooked on a particular video game I've never heard it before, I'll actually go on the Australian classification website and go, oh, okay, that game is rated MA 15 plus and you're only 12. I'm sorry, but the government have said that have said that this game is not appropriate for you. And then I leave the ball in the parents' court. So it's up to the parents to police that. In terms of um, those sort of uh, line in the sand kind of questions, I always go back to what what are the values that you have in your own family? Do you value um, your child um, spending face-to-face time with you? Do you value your child um, looking at you when you're having dinner? Do you value your child interacting with you? Do you value your child going outdoors? That kind of thing. So if if you have those values set up, you know, just like any new business that you might be setting, if you have a, a strong foundation of what's your, your values and what's your vision, then that can, I think that's a better marker of how you can better manage your child's use of smartphones and social media. Yeah, I suppose kids are just watching, observing my young kids. That they really are sponges absorbing not just the words and things, but the actions that, that we put out there. So definitely. I think leading by example is a very important Definitely, thing. definitely. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you were telling me yourself that, you know, you try and limit the amount of social media that you use. I mean, when I go visit my, my nephews, I will actually put my smartphone in my glove box. Now, as much as I love my nephews, Sometimes they're just really boring and I'm I'm just tempted to look at my smartphone. But I know that if I pick up my smartphone, they're going to be saying to themselves, why is he looking at that thing? Why is he looking at me? Have I done something wrong? And it's all those sort of indirect body language things that we we do to each other that really affect our relationships. I think that, yeah, just that change of um, eye focus attention 
clearly says that you know there is something more important than me and you've then disengaged from that interaction with the kid i think another thing now is also you mentioned putting your phone into the glove box but the smartwatches now uh, you're connecting to the phone even though you're only a, a distance away there's still all the little things in there the reminders and it might not be the uh the the messages or the whatsapp um you know communication but it's the time to breathe it's time to close a ring and then you're, you're then distracting <laughs> away from from what you're actually there to do which is to spend time with your kid and you know enjoy that time as a family yeah um are there any, any other things that uh, you think parents can do regarding you know bedroom screen time switching off the wi-fi yeah i mean the, the basic sort of advice that i give to parents is no screens in the bedroom the bedroom should be for uh, homework and sleep only i guess the problem is that homework now is on online so you're gonna have to try and manage that somehow um, but we do know that kids who have devices and screens in their bedroom are more likely to become addicted to video games. We also know that um, uh, when I when I've gone to um, clinics in you know Japan, um, Singapore, South Korea, that the patients there they bring in journals. They they know what they're doing at what hour every day. So their days are structured. Their days have um, activities that they know that they're going to do, just like in a video game. You think um, uh, video games are not very structured. Video games, you know exactly what you need to do at what time to be the most efficient, and kids will know how to set up their game to maximize their, their potential to win. And I think we need to learn from that and, and do the same thing in our day-to-day -day lives. Otherwise, we'll be tempted to spend more and more time online um, the other advice is, you know, try and use uh, different uh, protected times, screen protected times where you don't have screens in the house, like at the dinner table, you know. Um, today, someone told me that their kids only spend 10, 15 minutes gobbling up their dinner. How about saying no screens at dinner table, but also half an hour after dinner so that you have time to digest your food and you're not going to be tempted to run off and play a video game. I mean, yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a good point. There are, there are also other um, interesting um, experiments that you can try for yourself. I mean, I tried for myself um, using a brick phone or a dumb phone that I got a $20 dumb phone from Officeworks and I used that for a month and, and just notice how that affected my behavior and my day-to-day my -day routine. And you'll find out that it's very frustrating, but you just realize how dependent you are on your smartphone. And another one that I did with my uh, my gym recently is we did a screen-free meal challenge. So no matter whether you were eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner, you're not allowed to eat in front of a screen. And if you did eat in front of a screen, you had to pay $5 to a nominated charity. Now, uh, that's a good way of doing it. Yeah. There are apps like Stick and stuff that you can uh, you know, have challenges with your friends, and that's not a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, so um, it's it just really – what I realized was is that my meals just became so boring because I wasn't able to keep myself occupied by looking at my smartphone. My, my meals became boring, and then it became a mindful exercise. I then started to focus more on the taste of the food. I started to notice the smell of the food and the texture and, and just look around me and uh, pay attention to my day a little bit more. So these, these are some little things that you can try. Another thing that you can try with your family is actually having 
a day where you don't have access to screens. And, you know, the best day would be one of the weekend days. So uh, we know that the University of Adelaide and Flinders University, they conducted a study, an 84-hour intervention where volunteers who were addicted to video games voluntarily gave up their passwords to their favourite game to the researchers on Friday midday, and then they got them back on Monday midday. So they had an 84-hour detox, a short detox. What they realised was is that this brief period of time refreshed their brains. Their brains uh, started to challenge some of what we call the negative cognitions associated with addiction. So those thoughts that, oh, I must check my phone, I must play the game, my teammates need me, I need to feel uh, good whilst playing the game. All these negative cognitions got challenged and then they reduced their gaming time at one week and at three weeks' time. So, you know, there's some interesting studies done and they've been done being done locally here in Adelaide. Myself personally, I would probably feel like I'd be struggling even just, you know, one or two hours without the phone. And <laughs> it's definitely good to have those challenges now that I know I'm not going to be at work. There's not going to be anything that important that I'm going to have to do. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, being uh, mindful and being in the here and now, it seems like we're almost living our lives through these little interconnections of, um, you know, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi um, radiation rather than actually being where our body is. So that, that's great. Have, how can parents find out more about your work and are there any other resources that you can recommend parents take a look at uh, regarding, you know, the topics around children and, and uh, yeah. electronic devices? Yep. I've got a website, cgiclinic.com, and you can find everything from my TED Talk on there to uh, information on how to make a referral to me through Call to Mind, uh, which is an online telehealth uh appointments and then also i've got a facebook group either cgi clinic or dr kim lee psychiatrist so thank you so much for having me andrew oh you're welcome thank you um i'll put those uh the links to those pages in the show notes and uh thank you very much and stay safe thanks mate if you're interested in learning how to optimize your finances, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, head over to my blog, medicalmoney.com and subscribe to stay updated. If you know a colleague who might also find this information useful, please share this with them. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.